Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. In a 1946 radio address, Pope Pius XII diagnosed one of the great problems in modern society, and his analysis has been repeated by uh, his uh, successor popes, but it's this. We've lost our sense of sin. Uh, Pope Francis recently has made the same point, warning us not to be like King David, who was blind to his own sin and required the prophet Nathan to open his eyes. Uh, Having people help us open our eyes is important. And it's the principle of fraternal correction that we come across. Uh, Matthew 18 has the most elaborate uh, reference to it in Scripture, but it's part of St. Paul's one another instructions. Uh, so it's important for us to get a grasp of what, what, is it, what does fraternal correction mean, and how difficult is it when you're part of a culture that no longer shares a common understanding of sin. With us right now to help us understand that is uh, Dr. Stephen White. He's executive director of the Catholic Project at Catholic University of America and a fellow in Catholic Studies at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. You can follow him on Twitter at Stephen uh, underline P underline White. And we'll have that linked for you in the Krista Guest Archives, too. Stephen, good to have you with me. Thanks. It's always a pleasure, Al. Well, let's, let's look at this. Um, it seems clear from both history and from Scripture that Christians in the first century had, to some degree, a lively sense of fraternal correction. Um, you certainly see St. Paul engaging in that uh, in his epistles. Um, and we would say that the Christian Church shared a common understanding of what it meant to be a brother, common understanding of who God was, common understanding of what human frailty was about and what sin was about. Uh, we're living in a day and age where it's rather difficult um, sometimes, I think, to correct a brother because you and the brother don't share a common understanding of moral failing. Go ahead and pick that up. Yeah, so... The idea of fraternal correction, obviously, is, is important, as you said. Um, but to elaborate on, on the, the point you're making, um, if we don't have a sense of what it means to be a brother, what makes us a brother, what makes us in a certain kind of relationship to another people um, or, or to another person, if, if we lose a sense of, of what authority we have and to which authority we answer, then the whole idea of fraternal correction starts to sort of break down. Right. Here, here's what, a way to, to um, maybe explain concretely what I mean by that. Um, if I see a stranger on the street and I say, you shouldn't do that thing you're doing, mm -hmm. he may listen to me, he may not, but what's it to him? I'm just some stranger he meets on the street. All right, if I say that to my son, that's a different matter. I'm an authority. I'm his father, and he, he knows, understands, in some way he has some relationship to me in which I am the one who tells him to do something. And same if I say it to a, a good friend of mine or to a brother of mine. There's a, a relationship of trust and hopefully of love and, and a shared sense that we are accountable to one another and under some other authority, uh, uh, God's authority, the authority of the state, the authority of our own father. Right? There, there's mm -hmm. a whole web of relationships that we understand that we belong to. So that when I come to my brother who knows I'm his brother and then I come um, as someone who's trusted and someone who loves him and I offer correction, that correction has a different weight. But if we lose all that context, if we lose a sense of 
who we are in relationship to one another, if we lose a sense of authority, man's authority over man or God's authority or the authority of a father or the authority grounded in the love of a brother for a brother or a neighbor for a neighbor, if we lose all that context, then our ability to correct one another in love and charity is lost. It's just one guy saying something to another guy. Right. Why should right. I care? Yeah. And the, the, whole, the whole context in which fraternal correction makes sense and can, can, can move hearts and consciences, that context is lost. And the appeal to authority here uh, doesn't carry much weight. Well, yeah. So one of the archetypal sort of exa- one of the typical examples of, of fraternal correction, and, w- and one I've used in, uh, as an example before, is the, the story from from Samuel, Second Samuel, when when the prophet Nathan comes to King David. Of course, King David had <clears throat> fallen in love with uh, Bathsheba and. The problem was Bathsheba was married, so King David arranged to have Bathsheba's husband sent off to the front lines where he was promptly killed, and then Bathsheba went into mourning for her dead husband, and when that was done, David swooped in and got himself a new wife. Right. So Nathan thought this wasn't so great, but he didn't want to just confront the king, so he came and he said, let me tell you a story. And he tells him the story about a rich man who's got many sheep, and he comes, and, and then he takes the, the, the little ewe from his neighbor who's poor, and he tells this whole sad story about someone who's rich and powerful and has a lot of things, who steals from the, the one thing that this poor man had. And King David is outraged. He said, this man must surely die, whoever this is. Yeah. Right? And Nathan says, you are the man. Yeah. yeah. And suddenly in that moment, David realizes this was a story about me, right? Oh. I had everything. I'm yeah. the king. I'm the God's anointed one. And I took the one thing that Uriah the Hittite had, his wife, and I took his life. And, and he repents, right? But he's called back to this this understanding of what he had become blind to, his own sin. But this presupposes that David is a godly man, a God-fearing man, a righteous man. Yes, he's someone who sinned, and he's become blind to and blinded by his own sin, but there's something there that he can be called back to. So that the words of the prophet that sort of slap him out of his blindness and out of his ignorance call him back to something, um, and he's he, he's convicted by this recognition that he has sinned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that that doesn't work if there's nothing to be called back to. Right. Right. Um, if we don't have some sense of recognizing, if David was not a man who recognized that there's a law, justice, or God's law under which he himself is subject, um, Nathan's correction of the king would have had no no effect, no purchase, if if David was a totally godless man. Right. And so right. this idea of fraternal correction, in a sense, what does it mean to be a neighbor? What does it mean to be a brother? Presupposes an understanding of, well, brothers are brothers because they share a father. Yeah. Right. In, in the natural sense, that can happen between me and my brothers and my family. But that also means that the, what when we encounter another person, human being to human being, at the most foundational level, um, we are we are sons and daughters of the same father. So that is the source of our something. If we lose a sense of God, if we lose a sense of God, then all we have is sort of one will against another. And this idea for fraternal correction isn't a calling someone back to a, a, a higher source of authority, a, a higher sense of justice, a higher sense of what we ought to be doing and what we're called to be. It's just an assertion of assertion of what I want against what you want. That's right. Or what I would would wish to happen against what you'd wish to happen. That's right. Yeah. There's no in, no intrinsic rightness or wrongness to what happened. It's just a matter of who has the capacity to impose the, his will on another. Uh, in a society which is losing that sense of fraternity and uh, losing the sense of uh, sin uh, based on an understanding of an authoritative creator God, uh, what is, 
what's the best way of approaching this? Um, what's the picture that we hold up that might uh, melt hearts and, and uh, help them understand the importance of sharing a common brotherhood, which again presupposes a common fatherhood? Um, if, if, if God said it, you, 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 you ought to do it, uh, no longer works, what does work? Well, there, there are two ways. Um, the, the first one is, is this, that you know, the, God has written his law in the hearts of men. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that's true whether we recognize it or whether we've decided to try and forget it or ignore it or not. Right. So it's always the case that anyone can be, perhaps, through the help of grace, but also through, through reason, be brought to recognize when they've committed some injustice, just sort of on a, on a natural level, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, but, and, and that works... To a certain degree, I think it works less well these days because people don't believe such a thing as natural law, and they sort of not only don't believe it, but they sort of inoculated themselves against it. It's yeah. an idea they reject out of hand. But the most powerful and the most enduring, and I think the the, the way to call people back um, to to the sense of our what it means to be brothers and sisters under a common father, the the way that that cuts through all sort of the the noise and the skepticism and the relativism of today, is an image that the um, is the image of the crucified Lord. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That kind of love, that kind of complete selflessness, that, that pouring out of self unde- for, for, those, for undeserving sinners, right? God didn't save us, God didn't suffer and die for us because we deserved it. In fact, he died for us precisely because we didn't deserve it. Mm-hmm. Right? That's what made it love. And that kind of love, that kind of willingness to undergo the most horrible, horrifying tortures and, and, and suffering out of sheer love for we who are undeserving, that kind of thing, that kind of love, cruciform love, can cut through a lot of the noise and nonsense in the world. And that remains always the most compelling argument, if you will, and sort of, and it's, it's an action and a recognition, but that's sort of the most compelling argument for the truth of the Catholic faith and for the truth of, of God's love for us. Yes. And that that love seen in the crucifix, experienced at the Mass, experienced in the Eucharist, um, or witnessed in the lives and actions of others, that kind of love remains compelling always and everywhere, I think. I, I remember, uh, I agree, by the way, I, I remember when I was an undergraduate, I was singing in Michigan State University Chorus, and we had to do a requiem by uh, Luigi Carabini. I wasn't an active Christian at all, uh, though I'd been raised Catholic. And as we were singing this requiem, we're coming across, you know, the Dies Irae, the Day of Judgment. And all of a sudden, it, it dawned on me that really, for 2,000 years, people actually believe this kind of thing. And, and I, I, this picture then of Christ, whose death in some way uh, satisfied God's judgment, struck me as just really strange. And because of that, it, it, it beckoned me to look a little further into what it is. It is a strange thing to talk about the crucified Christ or to see this crucified figure. Um, and even in this age, uh, postmodern world, I still think it's a strange thing for people to see. And it begs question. It begs why? What is this? Yeah, it, it's a it's a very strange thing that we we Christians, especially we Catholics, have as an image of our faith the body of an executed <laughs> right. 
right? Yeah. Um, in his moment of death, um, that's a strange thing. And that, that, that the use of the image, the use of the crucifix, the way we use it now, developed over time. It, this was not a, a, a common emblem used by the early Christians, say, in the second century. Yeah. Um, but it's a beautiful thing, and I think it's it's shocking. It still has the power to shock people to think. You know what? What God would do such a thing for us? Who am yes. I that He would do that for us? Yeah, um, Amen. Yeah. And what will I say to Him when I meet Him one day? Stephen, thank you. Wonderful talking with you again. Always, Al. Stephen White. This is a uh, essay he posted called "Behold the Man." It showed up in the Catholic thing. We'll have it available for you in the online bookstore. <laughs>